Again, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll read the entire chapter. And before reading this passage, uh, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we once more come before you in song and in worship. And now we elevate and exalt your word. Your word is truth. Your word is life. Your word is infallible and inerrant. Your word is made effectual to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we ask that you may illumine our hearts and minds and soften our hearts to the truths that we are about to hear this evening and that you may apply these truths to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is God's very own authoritative and inerrant word. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good, do you know? Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I write to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. This passage uh, abruptly starts out in shock value, uh, just as in a movie scene where it is common to graphically depict how dangerously close a character is to serious injury or near death. The sense here is that Paul is astonished. Notice in verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Even in the sexually uh, liberated Greco-Roman culture, 
the Gentiles frowned upon having sexual relations with a step-parent. As astonishing as this was for them, Paul's astonishment does not end at this point. So the first major thought from this passage is that Paul is shocked at the church's response. That is, even more repugnant for Paul is that the church responded by tolerating this sin. Paul calls them out for this attitude in verse 2. And you are arrogant. I am dismayed at your arrogance. Paul says this because they were actually boasting about their tolerance. Notice in verse 6, your boasting is not good. You think this is decent. You think this is respectable. But it is not morally virtuous. This does not please God one bit. And perhaps they may have thought that it was okay that between two uh, consenting adults who love each other, or perhaps they may have seen this as asserting uh, their sexual autonomy, not unlike in our own time with the, uh, with the le- such as the legalization of so-called uh, gay marriage. And honestly, I don't have any reason to doubt that they had a mutual love for one another. I say this because uh, this is a true reflection of our sinful nature. The scriptures teaches us that we love our particular sins. It is a, for sure, a counterfeit love, a perverted love. But nonetheless, it is a love for sin rather than a love for God. And it seems that we don't appreciate enough the fact that because of God's goodness and restraining evil in us and, and in the world in various ways... And then apart from his saving grace, not only are we dominated by sin, but we truly delight in it. And this results in boasting in our sin. So what should should have been the response in the church of Corinth? Notice in verse 2, ought you not rather to mourn? You should be grieving You should be mourning as one mourns the death of a loved one, as one who mourns the death of a son, of a child, as one who mourns the death of a mother or a father. And this is a dangerous condition for a church. This is a dangerous condition for the corporate body of believers to be in, and also individually. Especially individually. If you currently find yourself in such an egregious sin, it is a dangerous state to be in. Our response ought to mirror the Shorter Catechism question number 87. We should, out of a true sense of our sin and out of a true sense of capturing the mercy of God in Christ, to respond with grief to respond with hatred of our sin, to turn from it unto God with full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. So they didn't mourn. This church in Corinth, they didn't mourn their dear brother and their faith as this act was punishable by death in the Old Testament. That's how egregious this sin was. 
But Paul is not only shocked by the absence of mourning, but he is greatly dismayed in the missing mark of the exercise of church discipline, which is our second major thought this evening. Paul says, really, you have a member of your congregation who is cohabiting with his stepmother, and you haven't taken any action? Some today will brush off church discipline as an archaic and obscure practice, but Paul here demonstrates the urgency. He demonstrates the immediacy of this particular incident in the life of the church by calling for a specific type of discipline. Notice in verse, beginning in verse 2, And you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Notice in verse 9 as well. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And he follows up in verse 11 specifically. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. And notice in verse 13, the second portion of verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. Paul says, don't delay. Don't delay with such egregious sin. Do it right now. This is a public sin. Everybody knows about it. You must take action now. Don't even waste your time, Paul says, having lunch with such a person. It has long been held since the time of the Reformation that there are three essential marks of a true church. The first being the preaching and teaching of the entire council of the Word of God. In particular, the accurate and truthful preaching and teaching of the gospel. The second mark of a true church is the rightful administration of the sacraments. And what was missing in this particular case, the third mark, the exercise of church discipline, particularly by the church officers. So why church discipline as a, is, is, is a mark or a third mark of a, of a true church? Well, this passage teaches us first, first, it teaches us about the maintenance of of the moral purity of the church. It teaches us about the importance of maintaining the moral purity of the church. Paul gives us an illustration. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven. In ancient times, uh, yeast uh, was very costly because it was scarce. And leaven was uh, the um, inexpensive alternative to yeast. And, And leaven was actually just an old piece of dough that had begun to ferment. And when added to a new batch of dough, it spread its fermentation throughout the whole loaf, making the bread uh, lighter. So the the longer this process continued, the greater the danger that the dough would become spoiled. 
and poisonous. When the dough became bad, it all, needed, it, it all needed to be thrown away and the process begun again. So there is danger here that Paul is highlighting. The danger of the threat of, of spreading of immorality in the church. As it were, like as it were, a, a flesh-eating fungal infection diffusing itself throughout the life of the church. And the church that tolerates public, scandalous sin is a church that will tolerate any sin. But Paul also points out another reason for church discipline as a mark of a true church. The second reason he gives is that it it brings the believer ultimately to repentance and restoration to the fellowship of believers. In the Old Testament, it was a profane act to commit this type of incest. And under the Jewish theocracy, it was, uh, like I said previously, it was an act punishable by death. And you can find that in Leviticus chapter 18 and Deuteronomy chapter 22. But in the New Testament, the equivalent of capital punishment is excommunication. And it is uh, spiritual in nature. But it is nevertheless not, not less uh, 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 grievous or less serious. Notice in verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And what a peculiar expression to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Simply stated, excommunication entails the cutting off of fellowship ties with the Christian whose profession of faith in Christ does not match up with the God-honoring, with God-honoring behavior. It is to be, excommunication is to be deprived of all the blessings that are bound up with being a member of a true church. It is the environment that God provides for spiritual health, for spiritual safety, it is the environment where you find encouragement. It is the environment that you find the building up of one's faith through the sacraments, through prayers of fellow believers. It is the place you, where you find spiritual protection and support of the believing community. So here, Handing somebody over to Satan is to remove that person and to remove that person in such a way that he is brought back into the sphere of the kingdom of darkness and under the kingdom of Satan. Many at this point would say, well, that, that doesn't seem to be a loving act. That doesn't seem to be a loving but church discipline needs to be seen as a loving act. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, it is Christ speaking. And in that particular verse, it is a loving act by Christ in which he pronounces, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. 
So be zealous and repent. A similar passage, there's a similar passage of excommunication in the writings of Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19 to 20. And a commentator gives us some insight into the, the nature of this handing over to, to Satan. And he states uh, regarding these two uh, uh, verses, uh, verse, the verses in 1 Timothy and also in this chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, he states that the destruction of man's sinful nature uh, here and the salvation of his spirit on the day of the Lord reflects or reflect Paul's hopes and desires for him. Not Satan's desires, of course. Satan has no more interest in destroying the man's sinful nature than he does in teaching Hymenaeus and Alexander in that first chapter, First uh, Timothy chapter one. And destroying the man's sinful nature than he does in teaching Hymenaeus and Alexander not to blaspheme, but he may accomplish those tasks in spite of himself. So, in that particular chapter of First Timothy, you find. Timothy exhorting the church to hand over these two men to Satan. But in fact, Paul records what happens to this particular gentleman in in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He records what happens to him uh, in the end in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that he comes back in repentance. And starting in verse 6 in that chapter, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul states, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So eventually this uh, church uh, uh, ended up, ended up exercising church discipline to this gentleman. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Notice. Notice. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. See, church discipline is not for our destruction. It is a loving act by Christ. Verse 8, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. And this leads us to our last uh, major thought of this passage. The missing mark of church uh, discipline, especially in our day and age, fails to serve the highest purpose of discipline, which is to bring glory to God. So based on this passage, how can we bring glory to God? Let's return to verse 7 of our text, in our text. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate this festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the first thing that we should see in these two verses is that we need to see our daily need for Christ, and we need to see him as our Passover lamb. We need to see Christ 
and, and our daily need for Christ as our Passover lamb. On the cross, Christ gave himself up as a sacrificial atonement. And what does he provide through that particular atonement? But before I answer that, we're reminded about the Old Testament context about, uh, of Passover and leading up uh, yearly, uh, the Jews leading up to the celebration of Passover, uh, they would seek uh, throughout their houses and to make sure there was no yeast or leaven throughout the whole home, you see. And we're reminded of that particular context. But Christ gives himself up as that lamb, as that Passover lamb. And the New Testament describes for us what that, what that entails, what that means. And in the first place, that means that Christ brings about reconciliation between the sinner and God. Reconciliation. Also, it, it entails propitiation. It entails the idea that on the cross, Christ placates the wrath of God on our behalf. He absorbs the wrath of God and that was intended for us, that, that we, uh, uh, we were worthy of receiving, but because of his love and his mercy, he absorbs God's wrath on our behalf propitiation, and in giving his life also as a ransom for many. So it has these three ideas in, in, in atonement. So having poured out his blood, he provides the forgiveness of all of our sins. And Paul clarifies what he means here in verses uh, 7 and 8. In particular, uh, verse, verse uh, 7. Let us read that verse again. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you, as you really are unleavened. That is to say that you are a new lump, okay, as a result of God's saving grace, his saving work, in your heart and in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit as he applies Christ's saving work on the cross on your behalf. That is to say, salvation must come to you first. You see, Paul is not teaching and he is clarifying that the new lump is not by our own accomplishment in this verse. It is not by our own accomplishment. It is not by our own achievement. And the way we bring glory to God is that we celebrate Christ's work on the cross on our behalf and his saving grace of making us new creatures. He's given us new natures, you see. Recently, there has, there has been a challenge to this particular view and, and uh, some have raised the issue whether uh, we as believers can uh, still be totally depraved as new uh, believers. But this passage, and, and Paul re rejects that notion. New believers, or believers in Christ, 
by nature, can no longer be totally depraved. They have been saved by, in, in their total depravity. They have been saved by God's uh, mercy and grace. So this is the way to bring glory to God in our own lives. Notice in verse 8. Notice in verse 8 the call for us. In verse 8, he invites us, let us therefore celebrate the festival. Which festival? Ultimately, Christ crucified on the cross. Christ as our Passover lamb. This is the way to bring glory to God. He has made us to be in Christ new creatures based on his saving work in the gospel of Christ crucified. So returning to Paul's analogy with the leaven, the analogy and the imagery of, of, of the uh, leaven in these two uh, verses, Paul is quick to clarify that moral purity is ultimately in us, the work of God in us, and is not our accomplishment. A commentator has said, Regarding this, that of course the first batch of dough uh, has to be made with, without leaven. And this is why Paul spoke of cleaning out the old leaven and replacing it with a new batch. Of course, the new batch is this God's saving work. God given us a new nature. We are a new batch. We are new lumps in Christ. And leaven, by definition, could never be new. Only the batch could be new. And the older leaven became the more likely, uh, it, uh, only the batch could be new, rather. So in this way, he makes us a new batch. And we must live in light of this truth. He gives us new life. He gives us new life so that we may celebrate Christ as our Passover lamb, celebrate this particular festival, and we celebrate it in such a way that we celebrate it with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, it says in this passage, and not with the malice, and not with the leaven of malice and evil. It is to say that we are called to live according to that new nature. That new nature determines how and how we must live. We must live in that light. And in living in that light, we live God-honoring lives. We live God-glorifying lives. In the end, he brings us to worship. In other words, he brings us to worship. We boast in the cross. We don't boast in our sinfulness. We don't boast in human pride. We don't boast in our own human autonomy. But we boast in God's sovereign work of salvation, which he wrought for us in Christ. Boasting, in the end, brings us to worshiping God, boasting in the cross, is a form of rejoicing. And the concept here is not a, 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 a rejoicing, an annual rejoicing in Christ, an annual rejoicing of Christ's sacrifice on the cross on our behalf, but it is a daily festival celebration, which is our God 
which is the origin of our God-given boasts. Like Paul mentioned in the first chapter of this uh, 1 Corinthians, in verse 31, he says that in Christ, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Making a reference to God's saving work in Christ on our behalf. Christ as wisdom, Christ as our redemption, and Christ as our justification in those verses. So we bring honor to God in living in accord with this new life that he has given to us. So let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, but let us celebrate with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul goes, Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, all the promises regarding salvation, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And we're to do this for God's glory and his glory alone. And the people of God said, Amen.